Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School. Here, you'll get fresh insight from the people at the very top of the tech companies who make the products we love. Remember, you can learn product management live online. Visit productschool.com to discover our new certificate path. There, you can also join the world's largest community of PMs and network with the leaders from these podcasts at our online events. There's something happening almost every day. Hey, everyone. My name is Carlos, and I'm the founder and CEO of Product School. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. Her name is Megan Murphy, and she is the director of product at Hotjar. So, hi, Megan. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. You've been a big contributor of the Product School community as a speaker at ProductCon in London, which was actually our last in-person show before COVID hit and uh, many other ways. So thank you for being again with us. Sure. Yeah, a lot, a lot has changed since uh, the February talk. <laughs> so let's get started. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your personal story and how you got into tech? Sure. Um, so my start in product was by accident. Uh, I actually found myself as a product manager before I knew what that meant. Um, in the early stages of my career, I actually didn't really find my fit. I worked in finance on Wall Street. Um, I worked for Microsoft in like a big corporate. Um, and I didn't really find my groove until I went to a small 20-something person startup in San Francisco where I actually joined them as an account manager, but my role was to land a big um, customer called Microsoft, which was funny because I had just left there and I couldn't really escape the hand that fed me. And um, anyway, like in order to do business with the startup, Microsoft insisted that they would have an app on the Windows phone platform. And as you can imagine with a 20 person startup, it's really hard to convince anybody that it would be worth building an app for an ecosystem that was not exactly as mature as iOS and Android. So I realized that Microsoft would issue a grant to any startup building Windows Phone apps. And then I realized with that money, I could outsource this to another development company. So I Googled like how to build Windows Phone app, found a company in Belarus who actually built a great product with me. And we ended up building the app, getting a four and a half star review in the app store, getting the deal with Microsoft and profiting off of uh, a small like bit of arbitrage between how much the grant was and how much the, the app cost. So I, I joined the product team after showing I would do what it takes to, to build a product. And then I guess the rest is history. So since then I um, actually moved to Brazil for a different startup to build out its first product and design team. I worked at Skyscanner on its car hire products. Uh, which, if I'm honest with myself and with you, um, it's called Skyscanner, not Street Scanner. So it's the smallest part of the business. But I loved working not only on that team, but on an underdog product where you can maybe be more risky with experiments and you can do things without the pressure of the PL uh, impacts behind you. I joined N26 about two years later on the promise to build uh, the world's favorite bank. And that was a place where I really flexed and learned about myself, my values, my ethics, what I did and didn't want from work. So I actually had a pretty short chapter there. And then I joined Hotjar six months ago as a director of product, which is a great challenge for me because it's the first time that I'm leading all of our squads across um, both of our product tribes. So it's the first time I'm, I'm running the whole product org. So I guess you enjoyed that first experience. Uh, Definitely. And, and I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of people always ask us, okay, how do I become a product manager? And I think that your story is very inspiring. You, 
you didn't ask for permission. You just went for it. Yeah. And I guess. Yeah, did I, I didn't. Sorry. Did they, did they give you the title or did you just do it? Yeah, I mean, I ended up working really closely with the VP of product, that startup, who took me under her wing and served as a mentor. And like happens with most startups, not just in San Francisco, but everywhere, like the whole thing kind of came to a crazy mix of characters when we got the next funding round. So most of us left, including her. And yeah, she let me join the product team. So I, I still look up to her to, to today. That's, that's great. And you also mentioned that you've worked for startups in San Francisco. You also live in Brazil. Now, uh, I, I think you are in, in Europe, right? Yeah. So tell us a bit more about that journey and how that shaped the way you think about global products. It's definitely been something I've, I've done with intention, but I must say, I mean, the reason that I went to, to work at Microsoft was because I thought that would be my ticket to global opportunities, but I was surprised to learn that that wasn't the case actually. And, and it, it showed me that when you join a big, a big company who has a global presence, I mean, nothing replaces market knowledge or language skills or, or things like that, that I just didn't have. So when confronted with the opportunity to move to Brazil, which was quite random, actually, um, it was a 110 person company. So I wouldn't have expected them to move me to a different continent. But I guess for me, I just embraced the opportunity with my whole self. I sold all my belongings and moved in three suitcases. My partner eventually met me there. And, um, and it really showed me that um, working alongside colleagues who have a totally different context, different worldview, different idea of what normalcy is, um, really just made me see how much I don't know. And I think further contributed to my humility as a product manager, which is one of the, the traits that I look for most in hiring, um, because I just recognize my own biases and like, no matter how well-traveled you are, it doesn't matter compared to like living somewhere, they're totally different. If you have to go get an ID, I mean, you know this, right? You're from Madrid. So like you have to go to the government offices and the doctors, like all of that just shows me how much I have to learn. And I guess I try to take little hints of that into my day-to-day -day work. Definitely. I actually love to go back to Madrid. And now I, I say I'm a tourist in my own hometown because I experienced it in a very different way. I've been living in San Francisco for 10 years. And I have to say that that especially before everyone is working remotely, that gave me the edge to feel comfortable hiding remotely and across different time zones, which is now becoming more of a commodity. But I think if you're building a digital product that has global impact, it doesn't make sense to have every single person in the same room thinking the exact same way. Yeah, and I love that it democratizes opportunity as well. You no longer have to move for the job. You can decouple where you work like the company and where you work physically. So I'm, I mean, I joined Hotjar, a fully remote company of seven years. So I obviously uh, do that with intention. So let's talk about that. What is your day-to-day -day like? And try to be as specific as possible because a lot of people think that, you know, product managers are you know, very different than what they actually do on a daily basis. Yeah, um, I would say that a skill that I had to develop as, a, as an individual contributing product manager is something that's very much true in my day-to-day, -day, which is context switching like this. I mean, from one minute to the next, it's a completely different topic, different sense of urgency, different stakeholders. Um, but the way that that plays out in my day-to-day -day is most of the meeting time I spend is one-on-ones with the PMs on my team. Um, I would say something I really appreciate about working in a remote-first company. Uh, I mean, I think Hodjar has just mastered 
the discipline of every single person really questioning when to use a meeting and when to use another format to communicate. So I'm really pleased that like 30% of my time is in meetings and the rest is for myself. So those meetings are typically one-on-ones either with engineering or research or design or data counterparts or my, or my team, the PMs. Um, and then when I'm working on, uh, with my own time, which is something I hadn't really had in the past so much time to like do individually contributing work in a, in a people management role. Um, the way that I'd spend that time is a lot of writing. So whether it's internal comms or collaborating with, uh, my product marketing partners, it's a lot of writing that may not end up in a written format, but it's something to prepare to answer questions from sales or help with an announcement on a new product positioning or something like that. Um, or like writing a new process, um, writing something that I want to turn into a different form of communication, like a video or an illustration maybe. So I'd say most of my day is like whiteboarding and writing the times that I spend in meeting. I try to really focus on one-on-one -on -one communication. I'm so happy to hear that. I'm sure there are a lot of PMs listening to you right now, pulling their hair, thinking like I spend over 50% of my time in meetings and I'm sure a lot of them are not super necessary. So how do you create a culture that goes beyond yet the product people to, to make sure that, you know, you just go straight to the point when there are those um, synchronous interactions? Yeah. I think a lot of this comes from the the impression and the tone that's set by the rest of the leadership team. So it's not something I think a PM could do on their own. I think it really needs to start from every corner of the company, but little practices like, for example, like if we follow the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Like when you send an invite, um, I, I'll speak for myself. When I send an invite, it usually has a pre-read if I need a decision to be made or to assess some details. If there's no pre-read, then I tell everyone in the invitation, you don't need to prepare for this meeting. I'll lead it. Don't worry. Um, if there's something that could be a conversation on the fly, then I make sure that I prepare something for people to consume beforehand so that everybody can show up pretty equipped. And then also, I mean, I like to try to tailor my communications to the way that different people receive messages, right? Because every message is sent and received. I can't necessarily control how somebody will receive what I'm trying to tell them, but I can certainly control the way I send it. So it's up to me to try to cater to different needs. So I actually might send um, like a blog post that I write. We have an inter internal blog. I might send a blog post or I might actually partner up with the brand team to do custom illustrations. Like we illustrate our customer pain points, not in words, but in illustrations of real humans showing like real facial expressions, pulling their hair out saying, I don't understand this pricing or this doesn't work. Like we try to really personify the way that people feel when they use our product. That way it helps put in context the changes we make to the product. Um, but I might make an infographic to communicate something else. Like I'm I'm really interested in different ways to tell stories. So I use those mediums and typically it gets support of stakeholders as I go along because people start to get it. It does take time, but I think we can all train ourselves to have a little bit more fun with how we communicate and not default to a meeting, but actually look to like all these different forms of media and, and like content ways to convey content. Definitely. And uh, I'm just curious, how did you learn how to become a better storyteller and how to actually create some of those illustrations or visual assets to support your points? 
I think part of this was um, framed by, I, I went to design school here in Barcelona. I went to Elisamba, the School of Design, and they really share with you, they, they really like push you to share with others in ways that are non-conventional. So some crazy things like um, you ha you're blindfolded and you need to tell a story and you don't know where your audience is. How do you find them? or um, walking down the streets of Barcelona, like looking around and then coming back and trying to communicate what you see, but non-verbally. So they really pushed us to try to, to communicate in unusual ways. And I guess that's kind of left a mark on me. Um, but aside from that, I just love stories. And I think very much about these seven classic archetypes of how do you tell stories of the hero's journey, for example, or the rags to riches story. And so I use like, things that are not in the modern common product discourse to frame the way that I communicate. And I know that every single story is going to need like problem, attempt, catastrophe, improved, better, here's what we learn and move forward. Like that's how we humans connect to each other. So if we bring that into our day to day, like a little bit of Googling and TED Talks can go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we, we've been talking about digital products for the most part, but I also know that you've been building physical products. So I want to learn more about that experience and how you were able to maybe translate some of those, the, the skill set into the, the physical world. Yeah. Yeah, I recently shared more publicly my secret identity as a side hustling fashion entrepreneur who's bootstrapped a beach bag business. Um, so in that, the way that I've kind of leveraged what I learned in my day job is, is well, first of all, it's absolutely remarkable how long the lead times are to make physical products, even if you have a supply chain and manufacturer, which I didn't when I started. Um, but I guess the most remarkable way is that in my attempt to make this thoughtfully designed beach bag, um, I would take my prototypes or samples in fashion speak to, and give them to friends and their friends to take to the beach, test them. I would buy them like drinks, food, whatever I had to buy them to give me feedback. And then I would incorporate those, um, like those comments or those points along the way. So for example, the bottom of the beach bag has a clasp you can unlock to expose mesh to filter out all the sand. Initially, this started with a zipper, not like a clasp. So then after I gave it to some friends who tested it, they told me the, the sand got caught in the zipper and that you couldn't open it. So then I used that to make sure that I wouldn't make any other iterations with a zipper. So this is just like a silly example, but I guess the way that it's influenced my building products most is like the ability to take stuff from digital to physical and then from physical to digital is just like thinking through more carefully to put pixels, like pencils before pixels. Don't overinvest because you just create waste. I'm, I'm loving this. I'm a lifelong learner. So now I'm curious about what else I can, I can build. Um, and I also want to ask you, what, what do you want to learn these days? You're a pretty curious mind. So I want to know what's what in, in store for you. Um, that's a long list. So if I had to prioritize and what to tell you, I guess these days, what's really interesting to me is, um, is learning the history of different design and architecture eras and then try to observe them in the wild and uh and then fact check myself so 
um, for example, like I'm moving flats next week. And so I've been thinking through very carefully, do I want to go Catalan Modernisme or do I want to go like Art Nouveau or Art Deco? And so when I'm out in the world walking around, I try to say, okay, this building must be Art Nouveau, not Art Deco because of these curves or these floral influence. So like I love design and architecture. I'd say I try to exercise those muscles as much as I can. But my old standby answers to my interests are wine and coffee and food, like any you know, good millennial. <laughs> well, you live in Barcelona, so you definitely have a lot of different good choices to make there. That's true. Um, I also want to talk about diversity a little bit more, especially now that we're working globally, but that doesn't mean that companies are just more diverse because they are in different parts of the world. So what do you think are some quick wins there or artifacts that companies, regardless of the, even the, the industry or the hierarchy, can utilize today to start thinking more about inclusivity and diversity? Yeah, um, it's a very important and timely question, although I suppose it should have been timely forever. Um, look, like hiring is one element, but that's attracting a diverse pool of talent. So keeping them is... Um, maybe less dependent on recruiting and, and the people team and more dependent on the conditions of the workplace. And I think on that, on how to create a more inclusive workplace, I mean, something that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is um, we all look at a number of artifacts every day, like a Notion or Confluence page or Jira or Slack or uh, spreadsheets or slides, like whatever. And when we represent people, whether it's through personas like our customers or employees, how do we physically show them? How do we describe them? And this is something I, I think I've seen lacking in, in most environments. Like we typically turn to stock images to represent humanity, whether it's our customers or our colleagues. And I think I would challenge myself, my teams and, you know, product school audience, like anybody out there to try to think twice before, before putting a face to a name, because if we don't include the way different disabilities, different um, genders, relationships, different colors and ages and sizes. Like if we don't think through these things in the most subtle ways that constitute what we see every day, we're going to think like out of sight, out of mind. So I think there's a number of visual ways that we can improve the way we, we make an inclusive environment. That's a good point. And that's what I, I've been thinking that user persona sometimes is not the best way to represent your audience because we feel forced to actually put a, a face on a name and, and create an image that tries to summarize a lot of other people that might be very different. So it's, it's important to start thinking about it and create artifacts that make you think beyond these standards. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, another question that I have for you is about breaking into product. Your story was very inspiring. I love asking that question to other product leaders because I find the most random answers. So uh, what do you think starting today for someone who's thinking about building data products, something that they can start learning or doing right away in order to, to accelerate that, that growth path? To get into product in the first place. And then maybe we can talk about growing within product. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in the first place, I don't think everybody has a happy accident of falling into the discipline that they end up really enjoying and feeling fulfilled by. So, I mean, I didn't for the first four years, like I didn't feel fulfilled by my work before I, I, joined a, a product role. Um, so my advice in that respect is to take seriously, learn by doing. Like the best way to get your hands wet and, and like think through problems and apply the stuff that you might learn 
online, whether it's through curriculum like product school or even through mentorship or anything like that, is to go dig in. I mean, there are so many um, people out there with complementary skills who have uh, more like strong backgrounds or or experience or the desire to be engineers, designers, analysts, researchers in these other disciplines, and yet they they need the skills of a product manager to help them bring their idea to life, right? Or it might be the opposite. You might be a product manager with an idea and you need to go recruit these other disciplines to help you. So I would say turn to a community or I know there's something like co-founders lab or angel list, like just seek those opportunities out to go work with people and bring an idea to life and then hopefully take it from zero to one to 10 to, to further. Because without that, it's, I think it's really hard to, to genuinely like have this authenticity about responses in a product interview without something, even if it's like a project for a couple of months. I agree. And I remember my days, I, I started computer science and I, the way I broke into product is basically because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life coding. <laughs> and I went to business school and I realized that that was also not the right choice because a lot of people in business actually wanted to be in tech and, and get their hands dirty. So I also kind of learned on the go. And I think that back in the day, having um, a technical background was was very helpful because building something wasn't really, I mean, you required a lot of expertise. Now I see a lot of visual tools, even no code tools that allow you to really get from zero to one um, in, a, in a shorter period of time. Obviously not saying it is easier. There are many other things you have to think through, but even, even Hotjar, like I remember before that creating, a, I mean, a heat map or, or anything like that, like you literally have to spend hours identifying users, asking them questions now with a matter of clicks, you can connect with your audience. So how do you think that people who, you know, who even still struggle with this can get access to some of this technology and feel more comfortable to start building something, even if it's not pretty, even if it's not perfect? Yeah. Well, I think it takes a combination of confidence and willingness to dive into something that's unknown in order to, to get your hands dirty. I mean, I don't know that there's like one style. What works for me might not work for somebody else, but but you're right. There's so many products out there that make it easier than ever to bring an idea to life and to exercise these skills. Um, that also creates a more crowded market. So it's not like it's a a win-win, right? You you for every degree that it's easier to to make something, it's harder to get eyeballs on it to pay attention and to go get them to use it. This is something I'm learning with my beach bag, right? Like I thought by making a new product that clearly solves all these problems, at least according to me, that, you know, it's even hard sometimes to escape the build and they will come when you've done it so many times in, you know, for me, like building apps and different websites and different products and different databases, and then building a beach bag where I have nothing, no, like zero industry knowledge or connections, if I'm honest, <laughs> um, like being new to something is hard, but I think there's a beauty in being naive because you don't know what kind of mountains ahead of you. So if you're just continuing to take like a small step every day, look up, how can I collaborate remotely? I mean, I'll spit stuff out here because like I love Miro, for example. How can I organize my thoughts and ideas and research Trello? How can I do this and that? Like there's something out there. So leverage these products, keep making tiny, tiny progress. And then whether you want to be a founder or a product manager in an, in an existing company, like nothing is going to replace the truth from you that you built something and you can talk about it from low level to high level. 
well said. And, and I also want to talk about that high level because a lot of people become product managers and then they start also asking what, what, okay, what's next. And I've seen two big options and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen a lot of people who really enjoy being in the, in the weeds and uh, working with engineers, designers, business. And then I've seen others who like to maybe move more towards the people manager side and, um, and hire teams and, and grow. So how would you say, like, what are the options for a product manager and how they can move up the career ladder? Yeah, I think traditionally the work environment across most industries has paid more respect and more money to people who go into people management, which has been what I think is an unhealthy push in a direction that might not be a great fit for everybody because that might not be where their skills are or their interests. Um, so something that I try to do with my teams is show them that they have just as much opportunity to make an impact if they choose to be an individual contributor or if they choose to go into people management. So for example, at Hotjar, like we pay the same exact amount for people, the same salary brackets, I should say, for director and for principal roles because we believe that the principal role should indeed have the same degree of impact as someone in a director level role. And I really believe in that. As it goes to people actually moving upward, I mean, I, I think that more companies should give that kind of option because I think it would result in fewer bad managers. Like there's so many brilliant people who when going into management, maybe don't shine as much. And then a lot of people suffer, right? Because it's not just them who might be unhappy, but it's the people on their team. So I would say think very carefully about that. And if you want to go further as an individual contributor, seek out the employer who's going to make it a great experience because there are some leaders and there are some laggards, just like anything. And then in people management, going into um, like a leadership role where you've got folks who report to you, I think my best advice for a PM would be like, don't become an asshole <laughs> because you enjoy like the parts of the job that are the most fulfilling are the autonomy and the respect for decision-making and the ability to prioritize and size opportunities. All of these things don't stop just because somebody else gets promoted. So like, I'm never going to know the answer to a product question or have the judgment of one of the PMs on my team. In fact, that's by design, right? They are the product manager. They should be trusted with that. Just like I should guide them in different ways. So as long as I'm not an asshole trying to use a title and wave it around to influence stuff that I don't know as much about, we should be fine. And I think I'd just like to encourage folks who go into the people management side to, to really keep that in mind. Like if you enjoy the autonomy, you got to give it once you go into this different role. Well, thank you, Megan. It's been, it's been great to share this time and, and learn from you. Thank you for listening to the product podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.